Well, we're going to go ahead and continue on in uh, part 19 of our, our dive into the book of Romans. And today we're actually going to try to squeeze all of chapter 10 into one service. So I'm figuring we'll be out here by four. Is that okay with everybody? It's a lot to fit in right there. So, uh, <laughs> so I've entitled this message, Salvation to All. And like I said, it's, it's our 19th uh, part as we get into the book of Romans. This is going to be all the way through chapter 10. And if you remember, last week we were looking at the divine sovereignty of God and His ability to choose who will and won't be saved. And we looked at the Scripture to see that it was actually God's choice and not man's choice of who would be saved. In other words, we can't tell God who He's allowed to save and who's not. Can we all agree on that? We can't tell God. It's His choice. But we also saw that the choice for salvation isn't as some assume, but it's a, His choice was to include everybody, not to exclude anybody. That's the problem the Jews had is, is they were thinking that salvation was just for the Jews. And when God tried to, when God decided, as He had been decided from the beginning, to include the Gentiles, to include all peoples into salvation, they had a problem with that. And Paul basically said, first off, who are you to say that God can't choose who He wants to save? If He wants to save everybody, that's His prerogative. And as you guys know, that uh, many people have used those scriptures to argue some idea of exclusion, that God only has a certain subset of people that are going to be saved. But I think if you look at the text critically, what he's saying is that salvation is for all people, not just a certain subset. And if that's what God wants to do, who are we to say otherwise? Amen? But the one thing that we do notice is that man also has a choice as well. Men choose to reject Jesus or men choose to accept him. They choose to be obedient to the gospel or they choose to disregard it. And the truth is, is the many, the reasons that people turn away from the gospel really are many and, and varied. But the one that Paul primarily is going to deal with today is, is how the, the Jews rejected the gospel. But the principle still applies to us. That this idea that we can reject what God has for us. And so many people do to this day. But as we've got a lot to, to get through this, I just want to go ahead and get started right away. In Romans chapter 10, verse, verses 1 through 4, it says, Brother, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone believes you know one of the things that always amazes me when i read about paul is just his his heart for his countrymen his heart for the people around him and i would imagine that uh there were some people that paul maybe didn't care for there was some sex of of people in the the jewish community that paul just didn't like all that much but he always had a heart for his people. And I'm always challenged by the love that Paul shows to people because the reality is, is that sometimes if I'm not careful, I can find myself falling into a position where I'm not showing the same kind of love to all people. And the truth is, is I, I don't think that I'm unique in this. It's, it's very easy to get caught up when, when uh, you see somebody on the, the side of the street that's homeless or that's hurting, and we all automatically make snap judgments and wonder why they're where they're at. And, and if we're not careful, we can go ahead and begin to 
really assign judgment on how they got there. And we think that they're in that situation because they're lazy or they're all these kinds of things. And somehow our love becomes tiered. Is that just me? Maybe it's just me. But he, Paul continues to share his heart for his country. I'm always challenged by Paul. Every time he writes his letters, the epistles, every time he writes, everybody's like, I'm praying for all of you. I love you guys. And he never backs down. And that's the kind of heart that I want to have. And he says, my desire in prayer for God is that they may be saved. He says, but I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. You know, zeal is not necessarily a bad thing. Oftentimes in the, in the New Testament, it almost comes off with a, this bad connotation. But zeal for God is not a bad thing. To have a zeal for God and His grace and His love, I actually think that's an excellent thing. I would challenge all of us to take a look at our lives and make sure that we have a zeal for the things of God. However, if you have misplaced or misdirected zeal, that can get you in a mess. We see that all the time when when people put sports before God. We see it all the time when people put uh, movies before God. And truthfully, it can be very dangerous even when we get to situations where we put our, our, our kids or our spouses before God. Misplaced zeal is dangerous and it can put you in a dangerous situation. And what Paul's saying here is that their zeal was not according to knowledge. The truth is, is that many of them didn't even know they needed saving. They figured that they were already in just because they were a Jew, just because they were a child of Abraham, that they already had it in the bag. It was in the bucket. They didn't have to worry about anything. They didn't know that they needed saving, so when Jesus came, they rejected him. Jesus even preached the same idea that the Jews were ignorant of being saved. This is what it says in Luke 18, 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like the other man, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I, I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Even then, in these, these, Jesus is pointing out, you guys don't even get it. You guys don't even realize that you need to be saved. You think that you're doing all the right thing and you have all your ducks in a row. And, and Jesus isn't even talking about a hypocrite here because there were plenty of them that were. But he's saying this guy is... All his ducks are in a row, but he doesn't even realize that he needs to be saved. But the sinner, the tax collector, and man, it cracks me up when I read the Bible. Like, there is not a thing worse in the Bible than the tax collector. I think when I want to insult people from now on, I'm just going to call them a tax collector. They won't even know I'm insulting them, but it's the worst thing that you could call them in the New Testament. But yeah, this guy, he's, he's a mess. And he says, God, I, I know I can't do this on my own. Have mercy on me. He realized that he needed a Savior. There are so many people that walk around today that don't even realize they need a Savior. They got it all figured out. So they reject what has already been freely given to them. 
And it's not like Jesus is picking on Jews just because they're Jews. The truth is, is that Jesus was a Jew. Everybody knows that, right? And he preached to the Jews first. Matter of fact, when he came, he says that what he was doing was for the Jews. You remember the, the, the Gentile woman who asked for crumbs from the table? And he's like, what are you doing? This isn't for you. This is, why would I give something to you that is for somebody else? In John 1.11, it says he came to his own, to his own people, and they did not receive him. So we see a people that are full of zeal for God, but it's misplaced, it's ignorant. And, and this misplaced zeal or passion, like I said, is, is often the result of ignorance because they didn't know God's righteousness because this was due to pride or ignorance or stubbornness. And as a result, they attempted to establish their own righteousness. That was what it says here. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. We've already learned as we look through the Scripture that righteousness cannot come by the law. At best, the law provided a roadmap which was, showed what was required to attain righteousness on your own, but you really quickly realize that you're never going to live up to those standards. So since they didn't know God's righteousness, they didn't know this free gift, they, didn't know, they, they attempted to establish their own, and they put out their own laws, their own rules, and they figured if they did these things, then they would be good. But then Paul goes on to say, but Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ being the end of the law may be better thought of as the the end point or the culmination of the law. Christ is where the law kind of wraps itself up. Because we know that the law doesn't go away. The law is good. The The law is pure. The law is holy. We read that even in the book of Romans. There's nothing wrong with the law. Sin just took advantage of the law. But in Matthew 5.17, Jesus says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He later on says there, I think in the next verse, that every iota, every dot, every line, every little bit of the law will come to fulfillment. And Jesus, in his own life, he actually fulfilled the law. He was born under the law according, write these down because I'm not going to read them, but he was born under the law according to Galatians 4.4. And in Matthew 3.17, we see that he lived a perfect and sinless life because no one accused him of sin even once. Isn't that interesting? Secular, non-secular writings, we don't have anybody ever accusing Jesus of sin. And then God said that he was well pleased with him, like I said, in Matthew 3.17. However, it was his death and resurrection that legally fulfilled the law because he took on the curse of the law. And that's according to Galatians 3.13. And then we also find in Hebrews 10.26 that there is no longer a sacrifice for sin after Jesus. Anybody ever read that and got nervous? What if I sin after that? I'm in a mess. But what the writer of Hebrews is actually trying to say is that there's, there's no longer a sacrifice for sin because Jesus was it. He was the once and for all final sacrifice. If you don't get a hold of Jesus, there is nothing left for you. If you want to follow the law, there's not a sacrifice that's going to make up for what Jesus already did. There's nothing left. He was the final sacrifice, once and for all sacrifice for all sin because he finished the law. Jesus came and he lived the perfect life and he lived according to the law. Then he paid the price that was owed by all men and made us all right with him. Should we just receive this free gift instead of rejecting him? And then he goes on in verses 5 through 7 for Moses writes about 
the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. So as Paul's reading this out, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, and the person that does the commandments shall live by them, their natural response would be to say, well, we do practice righteousness. We do obey the law. But the problem that you run into is if you want to make the law the, the determination of your righteousness, is that once you submit to the commandments, once you begin living by the commandments, then you are beholden to all of them. And the scripture says that if you, if you break one commandment, you're guilty of the entire law. You know, that's one of the most scary and dangerous things that we can do as Christians. And instead of walking away from righteousness by faith, we begin to get in this cycle of, of works-based righteousness. And we begin to, to focus on the law. But the problem is, is once you begin to live by the law, you're, you're required to uphold all the law. That means that that one mistake that you made in third grade, that kind of rules you out. Not to mention all of them since. Any slip-up. Anytime you don't live up to the law, you're guilty of the whole law. And you guys remember what the wages of sin is, right? That means that you have to pay the piper. The problem is, is that all of us were guilty, and that's why Jesus came. Because the truth is, the debt had to be paid. There's no way around it. Somebody had to pay it. And God knew that there's no way that we could become righteous on our own, so he took matters into his own hand, and he became a man like us, lived perfectly and took on that penalty on himself. And then as Paul goes on to verse 6, these verses here, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. He's actually quoting from the book of Deuteronomy. And you can find this in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 36 through 14. I'm going I'm to read this for you. It's a little bit long, so bear with me. It says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul that you may live. And the Lord your God will put these curses on your foes and enemies who persecuted you. And you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all his commandments that I command you today. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand and in the fruit of your womb and in the fruit of your cattle and the fruit of your ground. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you as you took delight in your... That's good news, isn't it? And when... You obey the voice of the Lord your God and keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in this book of the law. And when you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, for this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. That's where we're getting into these quotes. It is not in heaven that you should say who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. And neither is it beyond the sea that you should say who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that they may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. Basically, what Moses was telling them is that you don't have to do anything to receive this commandment, to get a hold of this commandment. You don't have to go hunt it down. You don't have to perform. It's already near you and it's already in your heart. And the same is true of the word of faith. He says, we don't have to perform. We don't have to go on a journey somehow to go up to heaven and, and try to bring Christ down or go on a pilgrimage and go down to hell and try to bring Christ up because the truth is, is Jesus already took care of that. 
the word of faith is already near us. It's already in our mouth and in our heart, and we don't have to perform. We don't have to hunt. We just have to receive it. Amen? And then he continues on in verse 8, but what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Aren't you glad that says that doesn't say you'll probably be saved? There's a, a 50% chance. It doesn't say 50% of the time it works every time. It says, but for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So how is it in our mouth and in our heart? We have to confess with our mouth. Did you know that, that Christianity is actually not something that you can hold up inside? You actually have to confess this stuff. And we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. And when we say that, we don't say that he is he, we say that He is our Lord, not just a Lord or the Lord. He is our Lord is what we have to confess. And then we have to believe that with our hearts. And the truth is, is that it takes both of that. Believing in your hearts, you can do quietly in your chair. But confessing requires you to open your mouth. And some people, they'll open their mouth about all kinds of things, but you can't get them to talk about Jesus. You know who their favorite football team is or college team is. You know what their favorite things in life are, their favorite things to do, their favorite movie. You go on Facebook, you'll find out all kinds of stuff. Some of it's not even relevant or important, but they'll shout it from the rooftops. But they won't say anything about Jesus. It takes both. You, you can't just believe in your heart. At some point, you've got to tell somebody. Because the reality is, is if you, if you only believe, but you never confess, do you really believe? And if you only confess, so you look good on the outside, but you don't actually believe, what good is that going to do you? There are many people that play that game as well. They've been going to church their entire life, doing all the right things, singing all the right songs. They never miss a service, but they never actually receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. They're sitting in that performance mindset with their checkbox thinking they're going to go, to go to heaven one day and say, look, God, all these dates, I went to church. Isn't that enough? And he's going to say, I never knew you. We have to know him. That's one of the main reasons that when we do an altar call, when we ask people to, to receive the Lord, we ask them to raise their hand because they believe in their heart, but at some point they have to make a confession. It's not to embarrass them. Matter of fact, when most people get embarrassed that people are going to look at them if they raise their hand, but the truth is when we see it, we rejoice with them. We're so excited that somebody is no longer lost, that they've been made brand new, but they're afraid. But the reason we do it is because they have to, they have to confess. You can believe privately, but confession is a public thing. And the truth is, salvation really is such an easy, easy thing. But we try to complicate it so much. It simply is saying, yes, Lord. I believe that you're the Son of God. I believe that you died for me, and I now consider you my Lord and my Savior. That's why when you hear the, the prayers for the altar call, some of them are, are very long and flowery. Some of them are short. But the truth is, it's, it's not the, the prayer that, that, that does anything. 
It's the believing in their heart and the confessing with their mouth. They don't even have to say the prayer and they can still be saved as long as they believe and as long as they confess that Jesus is Lord. Amen? And he goes on in verse 11 through 13, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Isn't that good news? You know, that's one of the things that's different about Christianity and every other religion. Every other religion has as a performance way that you can try to get right with, with your God. But they can never know. They're hoping that the scales tip in their balance. But God says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. That means that we can know. We can have confidence. We don't have to be afraid or wonder. It's a simple question. Did you put your trust in him? Did you believe in him? And if the answer is yes, you're in. It says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Belief comes from the heart. And ultimately, Confessing is just a manifestation of that belief. You can always tell what somebody believes by the stuff that comes out of their mouth. If you have somebody that has a particular political affiliation, how do you know it? Because they don't shut up usually. What they believe comes out of their mouth. And the same should be true for us in our spiritual life as well. Do the people around you know that you're a Christian? That's a serious question you should ask. The people you work with, do they know that you're a Christian? And I'm not talking about taking your Bible with you to to work and and just beating them over the head with it because that's not going to accomplish anything either. But they should at least know. They should see something different about you when they're they're all standing around the cooler uh, cussing or telling sexual jokes. Like, why doesn't he ever laugh? And if you are laughing with him, you should... Wonder why you're laughing with them. Confessing and belief are two parts, two sides of the same coin. And the truth is, is they, they come together. They're not steps. It's not like you believe first and then you confess or you confess first and then you believe. But they happen at the same time. And if you believe, you're willing to confess. And if you won't confess, like I said, you have to wonder, do you really believe? And if you confess but don't believe, you're just acting on empty words. But I love the fact that if you do believe and you do confess, you won't be disappointed. You know, this hope that we have in Jesus is not like I've said before. It's it's not like the hope that we talk about today. It's not like, I hope it rains today. It's not like, I hope we eat pizza for dinner. Because those those kind of hopes is something that you want, but you're not sure if it's going to happen. But hope in Jesus, that is a done deal. It says you'll not be put to shame. You will not be disappointed. And there's no distinction between the Jew and the Gentile. And when we read this, really it means there's no distinction between Jew and the rest of us. Because the truth is, is that everybody's fallen short. Romans 3.23, all have fallen short of the glory of God. 
God. <laughs> oh, golly. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And this is also true for salvation. He bestows His riches on all of us. He bestows salvation on all of us. And what I love is that there's never a concern about there not being enough of God to go around. It's not like that there's a limit. God doesn't have one of those those fancy thermometers on His wall where He's marking in a little bit more every day as people get saved. And once it gets to the top, then, then it's done. The doors are shut. It's more than enough for all of us because everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, will be saved. Do you guys know what the Greek word of that actually translates to? Everyone. That's why they did it. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is actually a quote from the book of Joel in verse 232. He says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and Jerusalem there shall be those to escape. And the Lord has said, among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Everyone. And you know that that's always been God's plan, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved? This isn't something new to the New Testament. This has always been God's plan. If you call on the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. And for us, calling on the name of the Lord means a prayer in faith for salvation. Amen? So let's go through a quick recap of the differences of Righteousness based on the law and righteousness based on faith. Righteousness based on the law was only for the Jew. But righteousness based on faith was for whosoever, for everyone. Righteousness based on the law is is based on your works you had to perform. Because if you didn't live up to the law, then you'd fail. But faith-based righteousness is by faith alone. The law of righteousness was all self-righteousness because you took care of it yourself. But the law of faith-based righteousness is based on what God has done for us. The law-based righteousness actually cannot save you. The law never saved anybody. But faith in God brings us salvation. Law-based righteousness is all about obedience and obeying His words. But faith-based righteousness... Man, I should have picked a different combination of words. Every time I say it, I'm stumbling. Faith-based righteousness is about us calling on the Lord, recognizing that we can't do it ourselves. Does that mean that we don't have to be obedient to God? No. We still need to be obedient. The difference is, if we stumble, we're not out. Amen? And the law-based righteousness leads to pride. Because we begin to think that, what do I need God for? I can do this myself. But faith-based righteousness actually glorifies God because it was His work in you that made you righteousness. It had nothing to do with what you did or what you accomplished. It's what He accomplished in you. So when we look at how we're doing, the fact that we're saved, we give glory to God instead of giving glory to ourselves. Amen? And then Paul continues on in verse 14. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Previously we saw that the Jews rejected God's righteousness. Not all of them, but most of them did. However, 
for those, even those that initially rejected and, and those who are still rejecting today, and for the Gentiles who are lost as well, who are rejecting today, there is a solution. You know, when we look around at the people around us who aren't in church, who aren't serving God, all hope is not lost for them. There is a solution. And that's hearing the gospel so that they can call on the name of Jesus. This is a story that I've always thought was really good. He says, winning a child to Christ is, of course, infinitely valuable in and itself. But sometimes we're winning even more, as the following story shows. Edward Kimball, a shoe shop assistant and a Sunday school teacher in Chicago, loved boys. And he spent hours of his free time visiting the young street urchins in Chicago's inner city, trying to win them for Christ. Through him, a young boy named D.L. Moody got saved in 1858, and Moody grew up to be a preacher. In 1879, Moody won to the Lord a young man by the name of F.B. Meyer, who also grew up to be a preacher, and Meyer won a young man by the name of J.W. Chapman to Christ, and Chapman in turn grew up to be a preacher and brought the message of Christ to a baseball player named Billy Sunday. And as an athlete evangelist, Sunday held a revival in Charlotte, North Carolina that was so successful that another evangelist by the name of Mordecai Ham was invited to Charlotte to preach, and it was while Ham was preaching that a teenager named Billy Graham gave his life to Jesus. And it all started by winning one person to Christ, one child to Christ. And most of us know what Billy Graham has accomplished, and it didn't just stop with Billy Graham. There are so many people that have been touched by him, and exponentially the world is being touched because somebody had the nerve to speak to a child, to tell them about the love of Christ. It says, how then will they call on on them in whom they have not believed? So the question is, what do they have to believe? That Jesus was the Son of God, that he was crucified and he died for their sin, that he was raised again so that they would have newness of life, and that his sacrifice was enough. That's all they have to believe. We make salvation so complicated. And sometimes when we have the opportunity to share, we don't because we're afraid of what someone might say, or even worse, we don't think we have all the answers. We don't want to talk to people because what if they have a tough question? You want to know what the answer to the tough questions is? It's an easy one. You go, I don't know, but God did this in my life. Well, why doesn't God do this and this and this? You know, I don't know all the details, but I can tell you what God did in my life. You ask me about that, I know what happened there. Well, how do you know that happened? Because I was there. How do you know that's true? Because I was there. You don't have to have all the answers to share the love of Christ with somebody. Before I became a pastor, that was one of the biggest I had was that I wouldn't know enough, that I wouldn't have all the right answers. And uh, that was one thing that, that, that my pastor said to me. It was a couple things. He's like, one, the truth is, is nobody's ever ready, so you're plenty ready. And two, he says, and this is a guy who I look up to, who probably has one of the best minds for Scripture that I've ever seen, Pastor Mike Petzer, and he feels like he doesn't have it all figured out. But that was one of the, the scariest things to me that I would get up here and, and what would happen if somebody came up and had a question for me and I didn't have the answer. And Cliff and Jan, I remember when Cliff and Jan first called me when we first started the church, it was actually Jan called me and she started asking me about some sort of theology. 
And I'm like, I don't know what you're, I don't know what that is. I said, tell me what you're talking about and I'll tell you what I, what I believe on it. And she was talking about, what was the name of that, Jen? I, don't, I still remember what that theology you were talking about was. Yeah. Oh, replacement theology. I still don't know what that is. <laughs> but I do know this, is that God still loves the Jewish people and that He has a plan for them. And He's still going to be faithful to His promises towards them. That's never going to change because God is faithful. So you can call your theologies what you want. I don't know, know them all. One of the craziest ones that I heard is about prosperity gospel. Do you believe in the prosperity gospel? And I'm like, I think I do. I mean, I believe that God loves us and that He wants us to prosper and He wants the best for our life. I mean, well, why wouldn't you believe that? Well, I didn't realize that it was, it was something else. I'm, I didn't know what the prosperity gospel was at the time. Do I think that God wants everybody to be rich? No, because some of you guys would do stupid stuff if you had a lot of money. You would spend yourself right into hell if you had too much money. So, if that's what the prosperity gospel means to you, that you're supposed to be rich, then I guess, no, I don't, I don't believe in the prosperity gospel. But I do believe that, that, that God said that He'd never leave us nor forsake us. David said, I've, I, am, I am old, but when I was... I've, I, yeah, I am old, but... Uh, how did that go? Anyway, he says that I've never seen the righteous forsaken. Even now, up here in front of you guys right now, that's... What are they going to say that I didn't remember the Scripture perfectly right? Are they all going to stampede out of here? I don't know everything. I don't know all the details. I'm pretty good at knowing where to look for it. And I can write messages because I have the, the right books and the right resources and I can help you understand stuff, but I don't know everything. I haven't got it all memorized. I am terrible at memorizing Scriptures. I'm actually pretty good at remembering, and like I was talking in Bible study the, the other day, I said it's the New Wayne translation. It's how I paraphrase it, how I remember it. It's pretty close, but I don't have it perfectly memorized. And don't ask me where it is. That's what I use Google for. Or Joseph, yeah, one of the two. But I know that God doesn't forsake people. He's always there for them. He'll provide for them. I mean, God is a father. I know what I want for my kids, and God's a better father than me. So if that means prosperity to you, then yeah, I'm all in. I believe God loves us, and he wants to take care of us. He's never going to give you something that will hurt you. You guys got me all off track. Where are we at? The truth is, is that there is a solution for those who are out there. We just have to share it with them so they have the opportunity. Because that's what he says. How will they call on him if they have not believed? And how are they to believe if they've never heard? Do you know that the, the Greek word, I looked this up. I didn't know this before. I looked it up. So you guys, if you guys need help with some of this stuff, get out Google and get out a book. You can find this stuff. But the word here, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it right. Kiriso. Kiriso what they translate to the word preach. How, will they, how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach? That word that they translate to preach, all it means is to, to be a herald, to announce. Did you know that that's not limited to the pulpit? It doesn't mean that it's only, only pastors and evangelists can share the gospel. Matter of fact, it's actually less on the shoulders of the evangelists and the pastors than it is on all of you. Because the fivefold ministry, what they're here for is to equip the saints. 
I'm here to teach you on Sunday morning so you can take what you learned and tell your coworker, tell your family members, tell your friends. You don't have to be a pastor to preach the good news. Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Jesus commanded all of us. He said, oh no, that was just to the disciples. Well, you're going to have a hard time explaining that when there's a bunch of people in the book of Acts that were preaching the gospel and having all those same signs and wonders following them who believe that didn't get that message, the 11 disciples that were there at the time. That command was to all of us, not just the disciples, to preach the good news and preach to your friends, preach to your neighbors. Sometimes you even need to preach to yourself. And this is the the process that we have to share the gospel, to see people saved. One of the things we can ask ourselves is, have I ever led anybody to Christ? And probably, I won't even ask you to raise your hands, because I bet there's people that haven't. But if you think about it, the problem is not that you've not led someone to Christ. The problem is you've probably never even talked to somebody about it. I know that was me for a long time. It's really hard to lead somebody to Christ if you don't tell them about Christ. But we are the ones that can ensure that everyone has an opportunity. And the truth is, is that your message is welcome. It says, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Contrary to my wife's opinion, I have beautiful feet. Contrary to my son's opinion, I have beautiful feet. Because my, the word of God outranks the word of my son. Can I get an amen? <laughs> it says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. All that means is that your message is welcome. And if you think back in your life, I think about it because it seems to me when I look out that nobody wants to hear about God anymore. Nobody wants to hear the gospel. Nobody wants to know about any of this stuff. And that's what we begin to say to ourselves. That's actually what we begin to preach to ourselves. And it causes us not to share the gospel with anybody. But I think back at my life and and how many people came and wanted to share with me and I pushed them away and I rejected them and I pushed them back. But thank God somebody kept coming back because I finally said yes. And the message was welcome. I hear it. I needed to know him. The message that you have is welcome, even if it feels like that you're not being welcomed when you bring it. But I tell you what, just one person gets saved because you had the courage to share. That would be enough. Amen? In verse 16 and 17, it says, But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Verse 16 quotes from Isaiah 53. And just as in the Old Testament, the Jews were not accepting or heeding the report, the good news of the gospel. This was also repeated by John in verse 12, 37 through 38. It says, though he had done so many signs before them, they still still not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That's the problem so many people have is that we see all kinds of stuff and we don't believe. So the question we have to ask is, is it God's fault when we don't believe? The truth is, is that when God offers 
salvation and we rejected it. It's not his fault. It's not his problem that we don't believe. There was one time a uh, a Christian and a and a cynic walking beside each other down the road, and the the cynic began to say, "You know what? If, if God and Jesus wants to save to the uttermost, how come He doesn't save everybody?" So the Christian that was walking beside him looks over at this young boy, the street urchin on the side of the road, who was filthy and dirty, and he said, "You see that kid over there? He's he's dirty. He's he needs a shower. Should we blame the soap and water for him being dirty?" The truth is, is that if we remain dirty, if we don't receive what has already been given to us, it's not the person that's giving's fault if we reject it. It's like blaming the mechanic that lives down the road from you for your car being broken, even if you never took it to him. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. If we won't take it to the mechanic to fix it, he can't help. And the truth is, is if we won't take our faith to God, he can't help us when we choose to reject him. And he goes on to say that we find that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of God. Did you know that people have to hear the Word of God to even have that portion of faith to start believing? They have to hear His Word. Just like we saw in the last couple of verses, how will they hear? How will they believe if they don't hear? That's key. This is why when I preach, I tend to use a lot of Scripture. Because the truth is, it's not the words that I'm going to say that's going to build faith in your life. My words don't have that much power, but God's do. So I try to incorporate a lot of Scripture when I preach so that your faith can be grown. It's also why if you find yourself to be weak in an area, or have weak faith in a certain area of your life, you should go and write down every Scripture on that thing. Put it on your walls, put it on your fridge, put it on your mirror. And begin to say that to yourself. I was just talking with, with Pat and Shar this morning, and they have little pamphlets that, that have scriptures for different things. He has one about faith, and she has one about healing. If you're struggling with healing in your life, ask. We'll get you one of those pamphlets. So you can have scriptures on healing. You begin to read those things to yourself daily. You begin to, to, to preach that to yourself, to, to name those promises over yourself. And it'll be a blessing to you. Because your faith will never increase in that area until you start getting the Word of God about that area into your heart. This is also why your testimony will never save somebody. You know, some people treat their testimony like it's gold. Now, testimonies are good. You should share your testimony at every opportunity that you have. But at best, your testimony will open up a door for you to share the gospel. But if they don't hear the gospel, they can't get saved. They need to hear the word of God. You need to speak that word in their lives. And like I said, it doesn't have to be word for word to some translation that we have. If you get the, the gist of it down, you're going to be all right. God loves you. He cares about you. He sent his son for you. That's what God's word says. And we'll go ahead and finish up here this morning. Sorry, I've went a little bit longer than normal. It says, but I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you, ang- with a foolish nation, I will make you angry. And then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. 
But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Other translations say a stubborn people. What Paul's doing here is beginning to head off the argument. And he says, well, wait a minute, Paul. We haven't heard this news that you're talking about. And the first uh, verse 18 is a quote from Psalm 19.4, which basically says God has been revealed around us in the world. None of us can say that we, we don't know or have some idea because it's been revealed in nature. This is what Paul says about it in Romans 1.18-20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. And the next argument is, okay, well maybe I, I've heard, but, but I don't understand. I asked, did Israel not understand? But then he goes on to quote, quote, quote geez Louise, quote scripture, after Scripture from the Old Testament. And he says, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. Or he says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. He said, how did you not understand? It's been in your Scripture the whole time. The idea of salvation is not a new one. The truth is, is the Jewish people had every reason to believe and understand. It's like the, the, the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. And he says, can I at least go back and tell my, my brothers? And he's like, why would they listen to you? They've already got the prophets. That was the condensed New Wayne translation. He says, why would they listen to you? The truth is, is that we all have had the opportunity to respond. And, and standing before God saying, I didn't know or I didn't understand is not going to be a valid excuse. At some point, people have to call on God. Paul is specifically dealing with the Jewish people right now, and, and the Jews had every reason to believe and understand. God had his arms open wide, waiting for repentance. And I thank God there are many Jews today that have repented, and we continue to pray for them, even today, that they would respond, as well as we pray for our nation and our city, that they would respond as well. But the problem is, is that so many people are rejecting the Messiah. But we want to remove all excuse as a church, amen? We want to share at every opportunity. Let's give them the chance to hear. So when you're at work, when you're with your friends, when you're with your family, find those opportunities and tell them about a God who loves them, who sent his son to give up everything for them so that they could be made whole, that they could be made right before God. Amen?